Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. Uh, this is Kevin here, and we have a, an exciting episode today to learn about liver transplant, specifically the surgical technique of liver transplant. And we're lucky enough to have Dr. Anushi Shah from Portland, Providence, and Dr. Leanne Dagaford from Mass General Hospital. Thank you guys for joining us at Behind the Knife to take our listeners through the surgical intricacies of a liver transplant. So a little background, Dr. Shaw trained under Dr. Dagaford, and uh, they put together some great videos of both a kidney transplant and a liver transplant and wanted to kind of get it out there. And so go back and check out, we'll have a link in the show notes to the renal transplant episode that they did describing uh, how to do a kidney transplant. And today we're really going to focus on sort of, you know, what are the major types of liver transplant? And then what are the technical key steps? Um, that way you can catch up before heading to the operating room, before starting your transplant rotation, really to get you up to speed to sort of the, the vocabulary. And, and so you, you can kind of fit in uh, as soon as possible. So let's just dive right in and not waste any time here. When we're talking about liver transplant, I think it's important. There's kind of two parts of liver transplant, and they're they're both obviously very important. You have the hepatectomy part and the implantation part. So as we go through, you're going to hear it kind of split up into those two things, taking out the liver and putting in the new liver. So Dr. Shaw, can you just take us through some of the, the very brief overview of pre-op considerations when considering these patients for liver transplant? Yeah. So, you know, the most common cause um, or the reason for anyone needing a liver transplant has been uh, known to be alcoholic cirrhosis, but uh, NASH or non-alcoholic steatohepatitis is kind of catching up, especially in the United States and the Western population as one of the most common causes for someone requiring a liver transplant. So first and foremost, we work up the etiology and figure out the reasoning for the transplant. Um, and then they go through a committee evaluation, and uh, which is a multidisciplinary evaluation in the committee will decide if the patient, uh, based on their MELD score and the severity of the disease, are okay to be listed. Some patients do get exception points, like patients that have uh, HCC or hepatocellular carcinoma. Um, and if they meet Milan criteria, uh, then they could have exception points applied for um, in order to have their MELD at, for that region, a median MELD of transplant minus three. So let's say Mass General's median mild of transplant is 30, then the exception point range that that patient would get is 27, and they would be listed at 27 because of the HCC. And the reason that, that we do that is because a lot of the HCC patients are either somewhat compensated or really well compensated, and their MELD is not high enough, but they still have cancer that uh, is meeting Milan criteria and does require them to have a new liver, but they may not be a very high on the list or may not get a lot of good offers. So we give them the chance with the higher meld. One quick question on that. Cancer and transplant generally don't go together um, too often. And I know that's an exception. Is there any, in, in kind of broad strokes, are there any other cancers um, that you can get a liver transplant with? Or is, is HCC sort of the exception? Um, it depends. Uh, so cholangiocarcinoma is also another um cancer that some, some centers would consider a liver transplant for intrahepatic, no external disease, no uh, metastatic disease. But 
I let Dr. Daggerford kind of chime in here um, on on that part because it's still a kind of a controversial thing. I do think transplant oncology is a rising field and that it's something that there's a lot of interest in. Um, one of the limitations is that there are just not enough deceased donor livers to go around. And so that really limits sort of the uh, indications for transplant. And really what's happened is that the, the patients that are being transplanted with the cancer are being held to the same standard as patients being transplanted without a cancer as far as survival. That's sort of how we decide. But certainly um, there is a, a protocol for perihilar cholangiocarcinoma, um, and that one's pretty well established. And there's even a way to get those exception points for that. Intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma is currently not a great indication, um, and there's no exception points sort of granted for the MELD score for that, but it's certainly on the rise. And another um, one that is certainly an option is metastatic neuroendocrine tumor. Um, and and certainly now there's a lot of discussion about thinking about metastatic colorectal cancer. But obviously, these last ones are sort of looking at the zebras in the room and thinking about um, the, the future of a transplant oncology. So in general, it would be a safe bet to just uh, sort of stick with uh, hepatocellular carcinoma if if asked. Good to know. And, and so, Dr. Shaw, as far as operative clearance, these patients are really sick. If anyone's been on a transplant rotation, they know the liver transplant patients are some of the sickest. What what are, are there anything important that the anesthesiologists like before heading to the operating room with these patients? Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to perfectly optimize these patients. You know, the cardiac and the cardiopulmonary clearance on these people is a little bit different um, than like any other general surgery patients that uh, we may have been used to in the past. But um, in general, we tried to make sure that they're able to actually tolerate being under anesthesia. And, and so if their RVSP is really high, um, then, you know, we would need to reconsider anesthesia would need to reconsider. So a lot of our um, listing clearance, or all of it, is part of the multidisciplinary listing is anesthesia involvement because we have specific liver transplant anesthesiologists that look at their periop echoes and um, are able to kind of figure out if this patient is going to tolerate general anesthesia. For the most part, they're able to um, take care of any intraop complications and um, the bypass piece of it, which we'll talk about a little bit, sometimes does help. But it's uh, the pre-op anesthesia eval from a specific liver transplant group is a huge part of their clear. Yeah, we don't give many shout outs to anesthesia on Behind the Knife. But yeah, I have to say, transplant anesthesiologists have to be some of the most daring and uh, smart doctors out there. I've seen them do some pretty great things. I'm sure you guys even more so have seen to discuss anatomy, so you know you're scrolling the CT scan. You heard they got a liver, and you're what? What should the residents be looking for on that CT scan to make them look good in the operating room that they notice that aberrant artery or or whatnot? What do you What do you look for? Yeah, so you know the big things. The liver's got a lot of in, uh, vessels going in and out of it. So big things you gotta look at um, is um, in general. If the liver is nodular, shrunken, you know, evidence of portal hypertension, if they have enlarged spleen, a lot of varices, um, we can analyze umbilical vein. Most of these people will, because that's probably how they got to needing a liver transplant. Some acute alcoholic uh, hepatitis patients, they don't have 
a shrunken liver, but probably have exact opposite, a really big congested liver. And so it's important to look at what the liver size is. Um, and then in terms of vasculature, the portal vein, if it's open or not, if there's a thrombus, um, did they have a tips in the past, you'll be able to see the the tip stent. Um, and you know the tip stents can be different as well. So it's good to know how high up the stent goes, um, a closer diaphragm and how far low it goes, uh, whether it's behind the pancreatic head or if it's actually just at the, you know, at the main portal vein, then because you'll be able to feel it intraop. So it's good to good to know that piece. Also looking at arterial anatomy, you want to look at if it's just, you know, common that turns into proper and then goes into right, left, or whether there's a replace right or re- replace left hepatic artery. Um, you're going to take all the arterial inflow when you when you do the explant, but it's important to see if if what the caliber or the vessels are, um, especially for the implant. Um, so you know if it's if the comment is very small, but there is a replace right that's huge and probably supplying a lot, then maybe you'd consider um, going a little slower in that area, making sure that vessel is well preserved in case you have to use it for reperfusion. And then um, some of the other things to just consider if there are, you know, other any other messes in the liver, um, if they had prior liver-directed therapy, especially in cases of HCC, sometimes those um, those patients will have a, a big desmoplastic reaction around it, and so it might be a little harder to do the explant. And if they've had any other surgeries. Um, a lot of the times we're able to get through the adhesions and, and get that liver out. Um, but sometimes if they've had big colon surgeries or something um, and things are stuck to the right upper or even if they had prior open cholecystectomy, um, there is a lot of adhesions to that area to even just get to the liver. So it's kind of nice to expect that ahead of time, um, especially when you're trying to get down to the porta. Well, I just wanted to interject about the uh, portal vein thrombus, and uh, because I remember this was actually on my general surgery boards, um, and so it's very helpful to know that if the thrombus is just in the portal vein, and especially if it's acute, meaning you know if you look at the scan and the patient didn't have it three or six months ago, and now they have it, you can still do the liver transplant. And most often, what we do is a thrombectomy, so we just do sort of loosen that clot and we're able to pull it out, especially if it's a fresh clot. And so, um, but you do need portal inflow to the liver. And we're going to talk about that in the anatomy bit uh, as we talk about the operation. But I think that's an important point when you're looking at the imaging. What is more challenging is if the patient has very little inflow at all into the portal. So if they have a full thrombus of their SMV and all their branches, and um, and then the portal vein is clotted, then that becomes a real uh, difficult uh, transplant. And that's usually a more chronic, long-standing problem and um, probably would be caught before the colon. But um, th- that is a bit of a difference. And so either way, I would notify your, uh, you know, your fellow or your attending and say that you found it. Uh, when in doubt, you can get an ultrasound and sort of see if there's any good flow in the portal. It's kind of the next step. If you were to to see to see a history of thrombus or a partial thrombus, you could say, oh, should we get an updated ultrasound and make sure there's good 
portal flow. But I do think that's an important point. Yeah, you actually stole the question from me. That was exactly, as a vascular surgeon, that fascinated me to sew to something that, you know, is thrombose. So I'd love to hear uh, thrombectomy and embolectomy is used in, uh, in your guys' field too. Do you guys ever use, uh, do you able to just scrape it out or do you have to ever use uh, Fogarty's? Yes, we do use Fogarty's. Sometimes we use a freer elevator to try and, you know, sort of uh, move around to, to pull the clot out. Um, there are some other ways that you can reconstruct the portal vein. And so there's, uh, you know, people will use the left renal vein or there's some other, you can use a jump graft. Um, uh, and, but for the most part, I think the important thing is just to know that you most commonly can can just take it out with a thrombectomy and you can still do the transplant as long as there's some some flow somewhere in the SMV portal system. Great. So Dr. Daggerford, I, I want to go back to you here. And as we move on and get to the operative description here, before we get to that, we have to kind of make a distinction that there's two uh, major ways that a liver transplant is done. Can you give us the kind of 50,000 foot view of, of what they are and why they're slightly different? Yes. Um, the initial um, conventional liver transplant, as it was descri- described by Dr. Starzl, was um, to to remove the whole cava with the liver and um, to do a bicaval. So essentially you you take out the cava and you replace it with the new cava that comes with the, the donor liver. And that means you sew the superhepatic cava and you sew the infrahepatic cava. And because you're totally interrupting the blood flow, many places would put the patient on VV bypass um, uh, to in order to maintain essentially the flow from the lower half of the body. After that was described, uh, another technique came about and it's called the piggyback technique. And then that, um, as Anushi's going to describe to us, uh, the the operation's a bit different and you don't have to, you leave the cava in place, you don't replace the cava. And so that's a different operation. Since then, there have been other techniques, like for instance, I know that the University of Michigan transplant team really likes to do a cavo-cavostomy, which is like a side-to-side anastomosis of the the cava. Um, some places like to do a portal cava shunt where they'll temporarily sew the portal vein to the cava. That was something that we did at WashU when I was there. So there are some other minor differences, but really the two major branch points are sort of the the bicaval versus the piggyback. Okay. And um, so Dr. Shaw, as we describe some of the pros and cons, uh, what are some of the major um, pros and cons of the, of the piggyback? Yeah. So some of the the piggyback takes maybe a little bit longer to do as a hepatectomy, and a lot of people would probably argue against that um, because you're just so fast at it. Uh, what that requires is because you're not taking the cava with the explant uh, or with the liver that you're taking out, um, you have to really mobilize all of the caudate and the shorts off of the cava and um, completely remove that as uh, part of the hepatectomy. And so that piece just takes another uh, extra 20, 30 minutes, depending on um, how many branches there are or how big the caudate lobe is. And sometimes it's really shrunken um, and is not uh, that big at all. So it doesn't take that long. Um, 
with the piggyback, sometimes it's a little harder to control the patient temperature, especially on from the anesthesia side, um, because you're not on bypass. Um, but usually anesthesia will tell you if it becomes a huge issue. Um, and then a big pro is, I guess, there's one less anastomosis. But the bypass, the VV bypass world will argue against that, saying that it really doesn't take that long to do an extra anastomosis. So... I guess there's there's pros and cons to both. So I'll just jump right into the VV bypass part. Um, so this the when you put patients on venovenous bypass, uh, we use systemic and floral bypass. And so uh, there's no cable or caudate dissection. So you take the infracava above the renals and you uh, take the supracava as, as uh, with as much of a cuff as possible um, from the hepatic veins and. Uh, this also gives you the opportunity, the bypass part, to allow for some ultrafiltrate during hepatectomy uh, while you're doing the portal and the mesenteric decompression on portal bypass. And that's really... One quick question, sorry, just yeah. for our listeners, the we're talking about the bypass. And is this the same thing as VV ECMO and, and sort of what is the, the very, very basics of the bypass? It's femoral and jugular or... Yeah, so anesthesia will uh, prep the jugular uh, for bypass uh, and have their cannula set, especially when they put in their lines initially. And then during the operation, uh, when when we're doing the hepatectomy, we usually have uh, another one of our attendings or uh, one of the fellows put in uh, femoral lines as well. Um, and the femoral line also has a, it's a V cannula, so it also has a portal cannula as well. So. It's partially ECMO because it's it's systemic, uh, like VV to V and to the arterial, and but um, we also have the portal piece here. Is it oxygenated or is it just is it literally just transporting the blood from the lower body back to the heart? It gets oxygenated in the in the circuit. It does. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Fascinating. So I think just real quick, we should make a distinction that. You, the VV bypass is separate from, so you're describing VV bypass with the bicable. Um, so some people do the bicable without VV bypass. They just clamp and sew very fast. And so um, I do think, you know, that's, you got to sew real fast if you're, <laughs> you're going to do that. Uh, and you can actually be on VV bypass and do a piggyback. Um, and that can be nice too, because you can fully clamp the cava and then, you just have to oversew all those little shorts, um, short paddocks afterwards. So in uh, MS General, we actually traditionally use VV bypass and bicable together. Very cool. Well, I think I think we've covered the main sort of points. Obviously, the VV bypass, you have to mobilize the kind of perfusion team and, and all the nuances of that and have the risks of the, the clotting of lines and air. And so I think other than that, we've pretty much covered all of that. And so for our listeners here, I think we're going to dive into the operative steps of the procedure. And um, we're just going to kind of go through these, so like I said, to get you used to the vocabulary used in vascular. And I think the hepatectomy will be particularly interesting to everyone out there who does liver surgery too. So Dr. Shaw, can you just take us through the basics of uh, the hepatectomy portion? Yeah. So um, I guess my my biggest pearl from fellowship um, that Markman would uh, definitely mention multiple times in the case is that retraction is key. Um, 
And so with any big liver case, you want to make sure that whichever retractors that you are have available or that you're used to, that um, you have all the pieces, everything's working and um, are able to use um, to its full potential. Because um, for any any big liver case, you want to make sure you have perfect exposure in case you get in trouble. Um, and What's then- your favorite retractor? The Thompson or? Yeah, the Thompson. <laughs> that is basically what I trained under. So can't really live without it anymore. But, you know, in, in my HPV fellowship now, we, we use a Thompson, but it's like a multiple different modified versions. So um, I guess there there are others out there. I just am not as used to them. So, you know, we'll just dive right into the steps of, of the hepatectomy. Uh, and the big starting point is once you have your incision, your initial exposure uh, to the liver, you start by taking on the falciform all the way down to the supracava, down to the hepatic veins. You expose um, the right middle and left hepatic veins and uh, take all of the tissues around it so that you know exactly where the supracava is. Um, and then you move towards uh, the left triangular ligament. And I just want to mention that also by taking the falciform all the way down to supracava, it allows you to um, mobilize and uh, place your retractors uh, and move up the ribcage so that you can see, get kind of like a full broad view of the right and left lobes of the liver. You start by uh, dissecting in the clockwise direction, taking down the left triangular attachments, which allow you to mobilize the left liver and get access to that gastropatic ligament. The gastropatic ligament is then divided superior to inferior with caution, looking out for any aberrant anatomy, such as replaced left hepatic artery, which comes from the left gastric artery and can be found running through here. Then you move anteriorly over the porta towards the right anterior inferior lobe of the liver. Um, And then once you have done that, then you um, kind of move anteriorly towards uh, the right triangular ligaments, take that down, the anterior attachment, so that you have better retraction of the hilum. Um, And once you've taken down the anterior attachments, you can put more retractors on uh, the left and right gutters kind of pulling the kidney down on the right side and um, gently retracting um, the mesentery and um, part of the stomach and the spleen down on the left side. And I say gently because there's probably a lot of collaterals there on this side. So you just want to make sure that you're not pulling on them too hard and cause any bleeding that you may miss throughout the case. Um, And then you can move to the hilum. And as you know, the, the and, and probably have been tested on multiple times in the structures of the of the hilum, the artery, the duct, and the portal vein. So the common duct is usually lateral on the right, the artery is medial, and the portal vein is posterior. And you start by taking the peritoneal attachments down anteriorly and identifying where your artery and your common duct is um, so that you can isolate them both. Um, and then usually as we come across these structures and isolate them, we usually ligate them uh, at the same time so that we have full access to the portal vein without any other structures around this area. There's usually a lot of lymphatics, a lot of periportal lymph nodes. um, And so we take all of these down once we've taken the arterial inflow and identified the bile duct. Um, And then we go to the portal. 
when uh, the coral veins dissected as inferiorly as possible behind or towards the pancreatic head and as superiorly as possible uh, towards its bifurcation into the liver. And we'll talk about the branch point here, but as as we dissect and identify the portal vein here and get around it, this is when we cannulate for uh, the portal bypass piece and place the patient on portal bypass. And then after that, um, we go towards the infracava and uh, dissect the infracava laterally, outlaterally, superiorly and laterally along the right side of the liver. Bank vessel that could can sometimes get you in trouble if you're not careful or ligated is the adrenal vein in this area because sometimes um, that can, if the, that does rip, it can retract and cause a lot of bleeding, be pretty annoying. So as you're uh, mobilizing the right side of the liver um, from the cava outward and all around to the diaphragm and we head back towards the supracava where you already have a stopping point because you had already dissected the right hepatic vein. Um, And because you had dissected and mobilized the left side, it's easier no matter how big or small the liver is to really manipulate with your assistant um, and mobilize the liver completely from the right side as well now. Um, And it makes it it a little bit easier to have that right side uh, or the left side fully uh, dissected away and mobilized. And then we will talk about what to do with the clamps of the supra and infracava, um, depending on what operation you're doing. What I just really described to you briefly is moving towards going into doing um, VV bypass bicaval approach. Um, but if you're doing a piggyback, then at this point, um, you would mobilize the right lobe of the liver from inferior to superior. And then as you're going, uh, from inferior to superior, also taking all of the shorts along the the cava and lift, really lifting that liver off the cava along with the cauda lobe. So we'll just go right into talking about what you do as you're doing a piggyback technique. Um, so going after um, you've taken the artery, you've taken the uh, identified and taken the common duct, and then you have gotten around and isolated the portal vein. Um, and you can encircle it with the vessel loop or umbilical tape, and then you go around to mobilizing the right lobe of the liver along with all of its, uh, from medially to laterally along all of its diaphragm attachments and retroperitoneal attachments to expose the lateral edge of the cava. And then you carefully dissect all of the caudate tributaries and ligate uh, those either with ties or clips or a combination of both. Um, to help you completely mobilize the liver with the caudate lobe off the cava. And we usually do this from the right side um, lift off towards the left. Sometimes uh, you can do it from the left side, um, but I don't don't think I've seen that done very often. Um, and usually the la- the caudate lobe, if it's really big, kind of curls around uh, the left and makes it a little difficult to dissect off from the left side. Once you've done that, you've basically taken all of the venous drainage into the cava until you just have uh, the hepatic veins uh, left. And that's basically what the liver is hanging on by. So uh, then you can dissect and, and encircle the right hepatic vein um, as it comes off. 
uh, and branches from the middle and left vein. Um, and uh, you can tie or ligate this or staple it uh, with leaving as much cable cuff as possible. And then um, usually most people will staple the right and use the middle and left confluence as the uh, as a cuff. So usually that's what's clamped. Um, and so if you've stapled the right and your left and middle are uh, isolated well, you can take the portal vein uh, with an endo-GI stapler as well, and then you can clamp the outflow, uh, which is the middle and left, uh, middle and left hepatic vein um, as it branches off the vena cava, leaving, again, as much cup as possible to sew to. And when you guys are clamping all these things, are, are you guys using heparin in transplant cases? Usually for a piggyback, we don't um, because the patients are sort of naturally anticoagulated in most cases. Um, yes. Sometimes when the patients go on VV bypass, especially if it's, you know, an HCC patient that doesn't have a coagulopathy, we do give um, some heparin because we don't want the, the lines to clot, the bypass lines to clot. Okay. And then, um, okay, great. So now we've kind of covered the hepatectomy for the piggyback method. And uh, Dr. Dagaford, can you take us through the the points of the bicable uh, hepatectomy? And yes, but I will be brief um, because I think the important thing to know is that in most centers these days, the, the operation you're going to see is a piggyback. So if you can get those steps down that Dr. Shaw just described, I think that you're pretty uh, set. Um, I think for the the bicable, um, we did talk about how you go on VV bypass. I think we already covered that earlier. Um, and uh, the difference uh, is that um, really you have to get around the and behind the cava, uh, both inferiorly and superiorly. Whereas in the piggyback, we leave the cava, so we don't actually want to be behind it. Um, and so to do that, you have to ligate the right adrenal vein. Um, and then you get circumferentially around the inferior cava, and then um, you have to to mobilize the right lobe again. Um, but instead of trying to mobilize the lobe off the cava, you're mobilizing the entire cava with it. And at that point, especially more superiorly, you want to be careful um, and think about uh, getting close to the phrenic veins, which often you don't necessarily see when you're doing um, a, a piggyback. And um, each uh, clamp that you use sort of varies with the institution. So um, here, because we're clamping the cava, we use a Satinsky clamp to clamp the inferior cava. And then um, we clamp the super cava with a big, heavy um, clamp. And it includes, you know, the super cava and then it includes the right and middle and left veins. Um, and so, you know, at Mass General, it's called the Cosme clamp. Um, at some other institutions, it's called German. But whatever it is, it's a pretty heavy-duty clamp, obviously, um, that, that you want to, to stay put. And then, just as Anushi said, on both now, the um, uh, Kiva Supra and Infra, you want to try and get as much length as possible to leave a nice long cuff to sew to. And so you cut the, the liver out. And by cutting the cava into pieces, which is unique. That has to be a little scary the first time. Uh, especially, I, I, I can't imagine 
doing your first liver transplant as an attending. Like I've done some, you know, open aortas and things like that. And those are pretty stressful, but I really, I, I just can't get around uh, doing your first liver transplant as attending. So uh, props to you guys. Um, so Dr. Dagerford, <laughs> uh, so Dr. can you just take us through uh, the finish line as far as the bicable, just kind of the exciting, the even more exciting part of, of putting this liver back in sort of the important pieces and then we'll go back to Dr. Shaw to bring us through the finish line with the piggyback. Yes, uh, to put the the liver back together for the bicaval, um, the liver comes to the table and so the first sort of thing that you do is so the supra uh, cava um, and to do that we actually use a big big hole so you don't worry about outflow with uh, a bicaval so because you use the the cava and then you use the main the right and the middle and the left hepatic veins make a big patch and you sew the donor Eva to that patch and then we flush the liver inside to using uh, uh, two liters of uh, LR and albumin each institution has a different flush but that's really to try and get all the preservative out that's very high in potassium so you don't really want to reperfuse the liver with all that preservative fluid in place because um, your patient will arrest and so we flush all that out and then we sew the infra um, cava as sort of as we're flushing. After that, we come off of the portal portion of the bypass. We do the portal vein anastomosis, um, and um, and then uh, uh, from there, uh, sort of the rest of the the description. I want to leave to Anushi or Dr. Shaw to to do because it's it's essentially the same from that point. So great. So Dr. Shaw, take us home. Yeah, so in terms of piggyback, the difference kind of mentioned throughout is that you have one uh, cable anastomosis, so you start with the supracable anastomosis, um, which is usually done to that middle left hepatic vein confluence that um, you preserved or clamped with a cuff um, in the right, uh, right hepatic vein is stapled off, so it's usually not used, but the confluence is usually big enough um, to use as a supracable anastomosis, so the donor supracable uh, to that confluence. Then uh, you go usually staple off the uh, the infracable after um, blood flush. So you go to the portal vein anastomosis next. So the infracable is open at this point, and you do an end-to-end portal vein anastomosis. And then um, the what I mean by blood flush is that um, once you have inflow and outflow, you're ready to reperfuse the liver. Um, so you'll open your portal clamp and your cable clamp, and you'll let some of the uh, blood go through the liver, um, which and then come some of it will come out the infracava. So that's the blood flush. You are basically bloodletting some of the electrolytes and uh, the cold perfusion. Um, and since the liver is sitting on ice before all of it rushes and hits the heart, which also helps anesthesia, uh, keep up with reperfusion and any weird arrhythmias. So once you've blood flush a little bit, um, and then you can staple off the infracaba in the piggyback portion, cause you don't have to do any anastomosis there and you have, uh, reperfused the liver at that point and things start to slow down. You warm up the liver, you let anesthesia catch up. And then on both techniques, you will go on to working on uh, the arterial anastomosis. And there are different institutions that prefer uh, where the anastomosis sound like to just use uh, 
with the celiac patch or um, uh, from the donor and just leave it long. Some will cut the donor artery back a little bit. On the recipient side, uh, most institutions will prefer a branch patch. And what I mean by that is you either dissect the GDA or you use the common splenic if they are coming off at the same location branch patch, which does require sometimes a little bit more dissection. So most people will use uh, the dissection towards the GDA and uh, use the common proper with the GDA as a branch pad so that you have a big enough lumen. Um, if that doesn't work, you can use the right-left um, confluence as also a patch and anastomose that. But basically, the principle here is that you want a good lumen um, that is free of any uh, calcium or atherosclerosis that is uh, not super friable and uh, will hold your stitches um, well and not dissect. And then uh, you can, re once you reperfuse the artery um, and are happy with it, then before you do the duct anastomosis, most people will make sure and check and double check and triple check um, for any big bleeders or anything. Because once you do the duct, you don't have as much mobility on the liver to kind of look around all areas that you have dissected um, all the way around the right lobe or on the left side. Um, also, once you reperfuse a new liver, sometimes it can get congested depending on how long it's been on ice. And so it can also be hard to see some of the retroperitoneal bleeders or diaphragm bleeders. So you really want to make sure that you still have full access to the liver mobility before you do the duct in order to take care of any big bleeders. As you reperfuse, sometimes when the when the blood pressure gets better or the liver starts to pink up a little more, you'll see little bleeders on the donor side or on the recipient side on the cava that you want to take care of. Otherwise, you will end up right back um, and we'll have to fix that later. We also try to give anesthesia some time to catch up with coagulopathy and uh, products um, after reperfusion and get a few set of labs um, while you're doing the artery before you do the duct to fully commit to closing this patient in a little bit uh, to make sure that they're happy with if it's their tag or their um, PT or INR uh, fiber engine levels and at least lactates that are maybe going in the right direction. But you'll know if, if the liver is working and maybe you'll start making bile, maybe you'll see some clots, but those are some good visual points, but you definitely want to make sure that you have good hemostasis. And then uh, you go on to doing your duct and everyone does their duct a little differently depending on the size. Usually it's end to end, but Sometimes people will run the back and interrupt the front or interrupt the whole whole duct, or especially if it's small, but you can also spatulate the anterior side and make it a little bit bigger. But everyone has their own preference when it comes to the duct. Great. So is the, the as far as implanting, does it apply to both that you connect the cava or the liver to the cava, then you do your portal vein, then you do your hepatic artery, then your common bile duct? Yeah. So that, that applies to both. After portal vein. Okay. So the liver is reperfused once the portal vein is reconnected. Got it. 
uh, before uh, the patient is closed. Sometimes it's before the bile duct um, or just after the bile duct. Uh, we do a cholecystectomy, which I will say is a great time for students and residents to come to the OR if they weren't already there. And a lot of transplant surgeons, unless it's you know two in the morning and everybody wants to go home, are willing uh, to have help with the open cholecystectomy. So since it's something that we don't see a lot, anymore as trainees. Um, it's a great opportunity, uh, even if you're busy on the floor doing other stuff, to try and pop into the OR and be a part of the colecystectomy. And you can log it as an open all bar. So I think that's a great part of the case. Thank you both uh, for this description. If you want to learn more, you can do a two-year fellowship, or we actually are going to have a video put together by them that's going to help and, and I think we're going to have some good illustrations, too, that we're going to be able to, to put out with this episode because there's a lot of technical language, but it's sort of like learning things above your head. You listen to this and then uh, read about it. I think it'll uh, make even more sense. So, uh, Dr. Daggerford and Dr. Shaw, thank you for spending a Monday night talking about liver transplant, and uh, we look forward to uh, getting this out there. Thank you. Thanks so much. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.